Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. And to those in the lobby, it's time to get in here. Let's all stand and worship.
Yeah. 
opportunity to be in your house. We thank you, Father, that even though the world seems to be falling apart, we can still count on you. You are the reason that we sing. Father, we love you and we invite you into this service today. We invite you into our lives. Just come and heal. Just come and be with us. You're the reason I sing. The reason I sing, yes, my heart will sing of how I love you and forever I'll sing for. Sing it one more time, but sing it as loud as you can. You're the reason I sing. The reason I sing. Yes, my heart will sing of how I love you. And for Good morning. Wasn't he beautiful today, Marty? God bless you. Thank you. It's, there's nothing wrong with applauding in church. Go ahead. Good morning. I, I should say Happy Father's Day, but we got people coming up here doing all kinds of gratitude things, so I, I won't say 
uh, happy Father's Day. My name is Harvey. I've been here for a while, and uh, I'm here today to uh, give somebody a chance to tell us how God is working in their life. It's called testimony, and we welcome that. In fact, we want that to happen because we want to know what's happening to our brothers and sisters uh, other than just sitting here in a pew. So raise your hand, and I'll come up to you with the microphone, and you're going to tell us what's in your heart. So, okay. So this week, um, um, I saw the Lord at work in restored relationships. Um, real important, close family, um, and restoration is just, um, it's only by the Lord's hand. I'm so grateful. It's just such a blessing to see it. And also, uh, our son was traveling for work last week and um, came home on Thursday, and I understood that was the worst day to travel of the year, and the Lord brought him home safely, so we're grateful for that, too. Good. Thank you. I'll, I'll get around to you. Hi, I'm Bonnie. <clears throat> for years, I know Bo has been talking about, like, reaching our neighborhoods, and I've always felt like, good for you. That's not me. Um, I much prefer one person to talk to at a time. And, um, but this spring I was really feeling that God was inviting me to invite the neighbors over as like an end of school celebration. So on Friday, we got a bouncy house and invited the kids in the neighborhood. And it really stretched me, but I said yes. And it was a big blessing and I think a blessing for them. So God grew me. <laughs> Anyone else? Raise your hand. Well, I'll tell you a real quick story while you're deciding that you should raise your hand. Um, today, a Father's Day is the only, the second time in 33 years that we're having Father's Day with my daughter. So I'm, I'm excited. Excuse me. I'm excited to get out of here and go home so I can be with my daughter. <laughs> Not saying anything against the sermon or anything, guys, but, you know, I'm anxious. But I'm here. That's good. Who else? I'm, I got my back to a couple of people over here. Anybody? Okay, I'm going to, oh, yeah, yeah. What? Oh, there's somebody on Zoom. Hello. Hi. Ooh, can you see good me? Good morning. You're good. Can you hear me? Hi. I'm Carmel, and... Um, I am, uh, I'm Bo's wife, but um, I, I've been having a really hard time and I uh, got COVID um, in April and was in the hospital and then came home from hospital, but was still um, not fully well. And so I'm obviously still on oxygen and still fighting all the after effects of COVID and what it does to someone like me who already had um, pre-existing conditions. And I was just, um, it just felt like we, we can't get a win, you know? And um, uh, even though there are so many wins, it was feeling like that for me. And, um, and so I, Finally, it was like, I'm 
I'm just so alone because I, I can't take care of the kids. I, I can't really help Bo do anything. And, um, I just have no energy, no ability to do much. And so I really preserve the hours that I get, which is about two a day to be present with the boys. And so I, I just was, I was melting. I was just melting. And so I texted, and here's another win, 17 of my closest friends <laughs> that I don't know how many people get to say that they've got 17 people who they know they could text and tell the truth to. But I texted 17 and said, I'm not okay. I'm hurting and I don't feel good. And I'm also just overwhelmed with believing a lot of lies that, you know, I'm a really sucky mom, I'm a terrible wife, all of these things about me that I know are lies, but I can't fight them anymore. I'm, I, they're starting to take hold. And so I wrote out a big long message to 17 people on the same text. And I was inundated by love like you've never felt before. And immediately Bonnie Backing, who just spoke, was like, let's read our favorite book together. And so we just immediately started reading it and sending each other screenshots of our favorite lines. We've both read that book probably way too many times, but it was just a, an act of comfort. Um, Maddie was immediately offering everything. Amanda Hines made me shout out what the Lord calls me. <laughs> of course she did. And I did it and it did help. And, um, and then yesterday, the Crawfords, Derek and Christina Crawford just showed up and came over. I hate that call first. I, I don't like that. And, but fortunately I was sleeping and Bo loves it. So he was like, come on in. And our house looks as if a hurricane came through and FEMA never came, came up with money to help us. And so it's, it's just a disaster. And Christina and Derek and Bo um, cleaned it. And Christina, I came out of the bedroom, walked into my living room and Christina was folding my laundry and she was folding Bo's underwear. And it, it, it just was uh, the personification of what it means to be in a community, what it means to have friends who are family, what it means to have family that's more than blood, which is something that my, my little nuclear family, we, we, that's one of our mantras. And yet I resist it <laughs> so much, except for my kids. And, um, and it, it was powerful to me in a very disturbing way. And Christina's and Bonnie's and Maddie's and Amanda's and all these people, Nasha and everyone, it, responding to me with such like immediacy and like, we won't let you go. Don't worry. This happens. We got you. Like you rest. We got you. Um, was, uh, it's like, you know, heaven come to earth. It's something really, really, really fantastical. 
and mystical and huge. And I just, um, it was such a massive, massive gift to me. And um, today's Father's Day and poor Bo has nothing. I've done nothing for him. Didn't even say happy Father's Day to him before he left. And, um, and yet I know, I know we go on because I have 17 women that will push me forward. <laughs> and, um, and I have a husband that has not left me. And, um, and I have you guys at this church that are just so full of love and ready to help. And so I just praise you, God, for showing me again that where we're weak is where we get to see you be so strong. And it is not fun to be weak, but it is so fun to see the strength. And, um, and so I, I just join me church in celebrating, um, that we're not alone. Let us all stand and who will stand out here and help me pray for Carmen. Come on, let's all stand and raise our hands to God. Who would, who would join me out here if they want to pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would be with Carmen, make her well, whatever the problems are with her body, Lord, you know what they are. And we beseech you and we ask that you would be with her and be with the family and make her, she's gone through so much, Lord, you know that I, you know that you know all of this, Lord, but we ask you that we would heal her and be with her today and every day, Lord. Is there anyone that wants to add anything? No. Father, we beseech you. We ask all these things in your heavenly name, Jesus the living Christ. Amen and amen. Let's remain standing. The name of this song is called Evidence, and Carmel just spoke of the evidence Marty, of God's faithfulness. Marty, excuse me. Go ahead. I, I, forgive me. I'm supposed to say all the kids are so go to the back for, well, I say Sunday school, but whatever it is. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you, Marty. I miss Sunday school. <laughs> What Karma was saying is, is direct evidence of God's faithfulness. He doesn't always show himself as himself. He, sometimes he shows himself through other people. And she had 17 people that showed the evidence of God's love to her. And for those of us who've ever hit rock bottom, and I've hit rock bottom a couple of times, when I look back at it, I can see the evidence of God's faithfulness through all of it. So let's sing this song. And if you've ever hit rock bottom or you've ever had, you've ever seen the evidence of God's faithfulness in your life, sing it like you mean it. All throughout my history, your faithfulness has walked beside me. 
the winter storms made way for spring in every season from where i'm standing i see the evidence of your goodness all over my life all over my life i see your promises in fulfillment all over my life all over my life help me remember when i'm weak fear may come but fear will leave you lead my heart to victory strength and you always will be I see the evidence of your goodness all over my life all over my life I see your promises in fulfillment all over my life all over my life grave the evidence is endless all my sin rolled away because of you oh Jesus see the cross the empty grave the evidence is endless all my sin rolled away because of you oh Jesus of your goodness all over my life all over my life I see your promises in fulfillment all over my life all over my life I see the evidence of your goodness all over my fulfillment all over my life all over my life you may be seated Hi, um, I'm here to lead us in a Father's Day blessing. As God's beloved people, let us pray for the church, the whole human family, and God's good creation. We pray for men who are expectant fathers, those who are waiting with joy, and those who are filled with uncertainty and fear. We pray for men who are new fathers, that they may be full partners in caring for and raising their children. Hear us, Father in God. 
your mercy is great. Go ahead and say that with me. Your mercy is great. We pray for men and women who long to be parents, but who struggle with infertility. Join their cries with those of Sarah and Abraham, Hannah and Elkanah, Elizabeth and Zacharias, that your will may be done in their lives. Hear us, God of life. Your mercy is great. We pray for men who are fathers, either by birth, by adoption, through foster care, or through raising grandchildren. We pray that they be supported in their parenting by their partners, fellow fathers, their workplaces, supervisors, and other men in their lives, that their children may be provided with sufficient food, shelter, education, and health care. Hear us fathering Jesus. Your mercy is great. We pray for fathers who have lost children, either in utero, through sickness, through war and violence, or through tragic accident. Comfort them, Holy Spirit, with your everlasting presence and assure them of new life. Hear us, Father in Christ. Your mercy is great. We pray for fathers who are incarcerated, fathers who have been abusive, fathers who have been hurtful and neglectful, fathers who have left their families. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in their lives and in the lives of their families. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hear us, Fathering Spirit. Your mercy is great. We pray for men who give of themselves, not just through childbearing, but with their intellect, their skills, their gifts, and their physical abilities. Bless all men that they may be valued as unique individuals. Hear us, holy God. Your mercy is great. We pray for all people who are parenting in many forms and in many ways that families come together. Help us to understand who you have created them to be and the gifts they offer in their bodies, minds, and spirits. May those who are in danger be protected during their time of vulnerability and show us ways to keep them safe. Hear us, creator of all people in your image. Your mercy is great. We pray for those for whom this is a day of mourning and sadness, for those who have lost fathers and other important men in their lives, that they may be comforted with the peace that passes all understanding. We pray especially for that they may be surrounded by your peace. Hear us, comforting spirit, your mercy is great. We give thanks for men who have been our father, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, sons, husbands, life partners, and friends. We give thanks for parents who have had to serve as both mother and father, as a single parent for their children. We pray for men who strive to reflect the caring, affection, nurturing, and friendship modeled by our triune God. We lift to you now the names of those who have mirrored your fathering spirit, holy God. 
Give them your grace and bless them in their lives. Hear us, loving God. Your mercy is great. For who else does the church pray today? For all those we name and for those who have no one to name them. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. Holy God, we lift our prayers to you through the Holy Spirit in hope, entrusting all for whom we pray to your great goodness and mercy made known to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Hi, I'm Sandra, and welcome to Genesis. I, will, I have some announcements for you. We are celebrating Father's Day, so please make sure you grab a special snack in the lobby. If you didn't see it already, please make sure you do, or go get a second one, or third, or whatever. Please take a moment to let us know you are here by filling out either the digital connection card on our website or the physical green card in your pew. If you are new to Genesis, please text new to Genesis to 94000. That's a 94 with three zeros. You can place the physical green card in the wooden box that's at the back of the sanctuary. This is also where you can place your offering if, if you've brought offering with you. Thank you to all who give online or through text. We are creating a place to belong, so are you willing to host a gathering for the summer? Maybe an evening in your backyard around the fire or a picnic lunch or summer games or some other creative thing you love to do. Genesis is a place of belonging, and we want to extend that belonging to others over the summer. Please contact Pastor Nate to set a date. Genesis is looking for a youth ministry director to lead our middle and high school kids. It's a part-time position with a lot of flexibility. Is this something you or someone you know would be interested in? Stop by the garden desk for more information. Redeeming heartache, this training has been postponed. More to come later this fall. And now I'm releasing you to connect with one another.
Good morning. Good morning? Yeah? Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Great. Great to be with you. We praise God for his provision through all things. For those of you who give as a mark of generosity, who give in the likeness of our God who is generous, as you give to the purposes and the things of God into this community, whether online or texting to give or putting a gift back in the brown box by check, thank you. And may the Lord continue to meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. So Lord, come and meet the needs reflected in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and abroad. By your great mercy and your kindness, we pray. Amen. I love the testimony time. Bonnie, thank you so much. I loved the Father's Day reading. Carmel, what a beautiful mark of vulnerability and beauty. So if you heard, her and Bonnie are reading their favorite, their favorite book together, the Bible. No, it's not. Uh, they're reading Agatha Christie book, and then Carmel let me know that those 17 ladies who she texted would be, all be giving me a gift today. So I am pumped. <laughs> happy Father's Day and happy Juneteenth. I love both of these days. I love Father's Day. I love being a father. I love Juneteenth. Not what is represented within our history, but the representation of growth and liberty and freedom and the ability to see something different. And so may the Holy Spirit, the living presence of Jesus, illuminate our hearts and minds and eyes today. May that be, amen. So in Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 and 22, let me just read these for us. And if someone strikes his male or female slave with a rod, and the slave dies at his hand, he shall be punished. Meaning he'll have to pay some sort of restitution if, however, the slave survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for the slave is his property. Okay, plain reading. You get what this is saying. In Exodus, you get the language of what is being encouraged here. So if you have a fee male or female servant and you happen to correct them, rebuke them, do something with the rod, you strike them, not with the purpose to kill, but if you kill them immediately, there is some form of restitution that you need to pay, but if they just happen to kind of like moan and hurt for a day or two, then you don't have to pay anything because they were your property. So here's my question. How many of you here disagree with this? If so, raise your hand. Raise them high. Who here disagrees with this? Oh, you agree with this? So if you, I'm sorry. Who here disagrees with this text from the Bible? That you say, uh, I don't agree with this. Raise your hand. Put them really high. So you disagree with the Bible. <laughs> Nate, Nate, can you be writing down these names? Because I'm going to send them to the Bible police. Good for you. You should be disagreeing with this. Every one of us should be disagreeing with this. This is in no way of saying that God is bad. You should. How many of you know that slavery 
was and is a moral evil that cannot be justified by any means and must always be condemned and is incompatible with God's justice. How many of you know that? All of us should be agreeing as well. Then, thus to know this, then we have a morally superior vision than the Bible does. Neither Testament in the Bible has a moral vision for the abolition of slavery. It simply regarded it as a fact of life. So we read through the scriptures, and when it comes to specifically slavery, it didn't have the vision when the authors put together, there wasn't this vision to see this to be done. It's just sort of the fact of life. So you read in the Old Testament, the New Testament, so much of it just kind of says, ah, it seems to be a fact of life. This does not mean that this, that slavery is a fact of life, or was a fact of life as the Bible seems to put it in there. This does not mean that this is the Christian ethical position on slavery. Because we do not follow the Bible, we follow Jesus. Notice the word here. When, I, when I'm speaking about the Bible, some of us use this language that it's living. And, and I get where that comes from. The, but the, the, the living parts of God are God. God is living. The Bible is not a living thing. It's a book. Uh, you, you don't need to treat the book with any more reverence. It's not alive. It's not a person of God. The word of God is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is that one. So that's just a, there's a part of there. Now, we're not trying to undermine God and, and, and God in any way, but just let me continue in this conversation with us. Because some of us feel really uncomfortable with this. We feel very uncomfortable having a, have a more moral ethic than the Bible does when it comes to certain things. And that somehow, then, the authority of God is questioned everywhere and with everything. No longer trustworthy. Because this is exactly what was happening in the 1800s during the Civil War. This was the challenge in the 1800s when slavery was being condemned in other parts of the world. Even though in the United States that we were slow, hard-hearted, and blind to these truths. There's a book that I was reading, it, it's called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. It's by the historian Mark Knoll. Mark Knowles. Mark Knoll, if you're interested, he's a professor and a historian. It's a disturbing book reading about Christians in the United States wrestling with slavery. And how the world was even wrestling with the United States during the Civil War. With the bloodshed that was being there. And their question was, how could Christians be responding this way in the United States? How could this be? And the biblical defenders of slavery during this time in the United States, they were, they were, they were more likely to perceive doubt regarding the biblical defense of slavery as doubt to the authority of the Bible itself. Did you get that? So if you're going to throw doubt upon 
the, a biblical defense of slavery, because if you read through Leviticus and you read through all these texts and it mentions slavery, it, it's saying, oh, if you have slaves, do this. And if you have that, right? And even in the New Testament, it was like, slaves, um, listen to your masters as you're listening to Christ. And don't, you know, all these kinds of things. So if somebody was coming with a narrative saying, no, 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 that is sinful, that is wrong. They were saying, if you're going to throw doubt on those plain readings of those scriptures, you're throwing doubt on the entire scriptures and you're, you're, throwing, you're showing infidelity as a whole. We're going to throw the whole thing out. That abolition leads to utter infidelity. That was the logic behind it. Even though, and, and though Christians all over the world were saying to be a Christian is to be anti-slavery... And that's just this common sense. This is self-evident truth. I'm going to read from Mark Knowles. And this is from a... I'm going to name him. I'm going to name the person just because he's, the thoughts were so terrible and they were put out there were so terrible they should be named. This is James Henley Thornwell. He sounds scary. And they, they, his sentiment was like this. This was encouraging Christians to do. He said this. First, open the scriptures and read. At, say, Leviticus 25, 45, or even better, at 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 21. So these are all texts that talk about slavery, and it is not condemned in any way, in any fashion. So he's saying, hey, open your Bible, read these texts. Step one. Then they say things like this. Second, decide for yourself what these passages mean. Don't wait for a bishop or a king or a president or a meddling Yankee to tell you what these passages mean, but decide for yourself. Third, if anyone tries to convince you that you are not interpreting these passages in the natural, commonsensical, ordinary meaning of the words, look hard at what such one believes with respect to other biblical doctrines. If you find in what he or she says about such doctrines that least hint to unorthodoxy, as inevitably you will, then you may, res- then you may rest assured that you are being asked to give up not only the plain meaning of Scripture, but also the entire trust in the Bible that made the country into such a great Christian civilization. Now you see the logic here. Many of us, if I said, even with the scriptures today, church, firsthand, read the Bible for yourself. Number two, take the plain reading of the Bible as it is. If anyone comes along to that plain reading of that Bible and tells you otherwise, then look at everything that they have to say and the doctrines that they have to say, if anything don't line up with orthodoxy, then you can throw out everything they say because they're wanting to turn you in your hearts. So this was the rationale. This was what was being spoken of. And because of this, there were so many people, so many people, and people today who struggle to read the Bible, struggle with it, parts of it. And many have turned from faith at all. Christians in another part of the world were confused by this conflict. 
Protestants in Europe were saying things like, this is common sense. This is self-evident that slavery is dehumanizing and evil. I mean, like the golden rule, doesn't that set everything straight? This is in Matthew 7. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Catholic teachers and Catholic theologians were like, you know what the problem is for Protestants in the United States? They don't have an authority. They don't have an authority who tells them how to read the Bible. Because all of them just get to pick and choose whatever they want and there's no one to say that. So if you had a pope or a bishop, they would tell you a little bit. So what do we do with this? And why do I bring this up? Not because it's... Um, but for the sake of Juneteenth, what do we do with this? Do we have an authority for how to read the scriptures? Is everybody just making this up? Oh, Mark Knowles makes this really painful, painful statement at the end of one of his chapters when he's talking about the scriptures. And he said that Christians were unsettled. People were writing and and and. and trying to defend slavery, and also anti-slavery writers were writing, and they were not coming to common ground. They were becoming more and more entrenched. And so how was this settled? Well, consummate theologians, Reverend Doctors Ulysses S. Grant and William Sherman had to decide the theological conversation. That's hyperbole. They were not deciding it. They were spilling blood. Remember we talked about the wrath of God and God handing us over to go our own way? So our country went its own way. And, God, and so the handing over is like, hey, I'm going to let the natural consequences of what you're doing lead to places that look like hell right now. And so the natural tendency for us to go our own way with people who disagree with things is to spill the blood of the other person. In no way was this a righteous war. This, this was the ugliness of sin in the Civil War. And the conversations leading up to it were ugly. And everyone defending that God's on their side. Even though many of us would say, yes, certain views were much more righteous. We're godly. We're right. So I bring this up today to make us wrestle. I was hanging out with a history teacher, Monica Visha, and because they're history teachers, they just have these, you know, these statements, and the statement that she said last week was this. History does not repeat itself, but it, anybody know the answer? It rhymes. It was credited to Mark Twain, but many don't believe that Mark Twain actually said it. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so when I'm, I'm showing this, this, this conversation in the scriptures and slavery and the way to use the scriptures, this conversation, this weirdness within this conversation in the Bible and God, that this part of history playing out with Christians and the way they respond in the world, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Meaning that we're going to see this and we're seeing it right in our day today. And so what do we do? How do we respond? What is the way of Jesus? And so part of it is as part of like learning how to, how to read. 
Now, there's different views about how to read the Scripture. And I want to I contrast a few of these. So the first one is called a flat reading in the Scripture. And a flat read of the Scripture means that, um, that every word has equal authority. And that's in the way that people who were defending slavery back in the 1850s, that's what they were doing. They were taking text and they were saying it's flat. Every bit of revelation is the same. It's a flat reading. That's just the way it is. This one, this statement in Leviticus has just as much, more, just as much bearing on our lives as what Jesus said. That's a flat reading of the scriptures. The scriptures are not meant to be read that way. Even Jesus himself. But we need to distinguish between this flat reading and a progressive reading. A progressive revelation of scripture. Now progressive is not a liberal in that way as if someone would be like, oh, this is the democratic side of how they read the Bible. It's like, no, 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 no. Progressive revelation just meaning that God intervened in time, revealing himself, God's character, and the truth. But that revelation did not reach the pinnacle until Jesus. Even Jesus himself said this. The full revelation of God. The prophets were giving them. But Jesus was the full revelation. It progressed. And so the Bible, they would say that... Um, the scriptures can be compared to a mountain with Jesus being the peak. It's progressing to the peak. So that's progressive revelation. And another view of reading the scriptures that's really helpful for us is the Christocentric view. This is similar to the progressive revelation. Where Christ is the pinnacle of revelation and every word must finally submit to Jesus. Now, I want to paint these views of reading the Bible. I want to paint these views of understanding God through Jesus' words. And I think that for many of us, we'll come out saying God is beautiful. And it is a way of not being able to fully understand all the ugly parts within the Bible. But to see Jesus, the complete revelation of God, and the beauty of what God is doing in the world, the whole mystery, the things we don't understand, but to have our faith encouraged today. In this Christocentric view, where Christ is the pinnacle of the revelation, and then every word must finally submit to Jesus, Jesus himself seems to push this. Not to push it, but to encourage it. So in Matthew 5, Jesus is giving this beautiful sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you can read it all. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. And he says words like this. You have heard it said. You shall not divorce your wife. Or you have heard it said, don't murder anyone. So when they said you've heard it said, he is quoting the scriptures. He said, you've heard it said this, but I say this to you. In some ways, Jesus is correcting the Bible there. He's correcting the right, he's fulfilling it. He's adding more to it. Not adding more, but it's like, you've heard it said, but I say. He's putting, he's fulfilling the words that are written there. In Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees are the ones who, man, they were like anchored in the text of this day. They came to Jesus and they were talking about divorce. And it's illegal to divorce and do all this. I mean, Moses gave us the permission to be able to divorce our wives. We could give them certificate of, say, certificate of divorce and we could send them away. 
Well, they didn't say Moses. They said God. God allowed us to do this. And yet Jesus then says this. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And then he goes on to say, but this was not what God had intended. That there was this progression of what God intended, but Moses wrote this because your hearts were hard. What God intended was that two would become one and would never separate. Jesus corrects them. And what he said is that, that what, what Moses wrote was an expression of the hardness of their hearts. But this did not reflect God's heart. So, as in this book, there was this proposed way of reading the Bible. Read the text. Read it flat. Um, decide for yourself what it means. If anyone tries to persuade you of anything else, right, they're a heretic of something of the other. I want to propose to you a different way of reading scriptures based upon what Jesus is saying here. Based upon this progressive revelation with Jesus as the pinnacle in a Christocentric view where every word must finally submit to Jesus. Our Lord, the exact representation of the Father, only speaking what comes from the Father. So here's how this works. Read the Bible. Step one. Two. If anything... And the rest of the Bible disagrees with Jesus. Listen to Jesus. You say, oh, what, what do you mean? Listen to Jesus. Okay, so there's a story in Matthew 17. It's called the Transfiguration. Jesus with Peter and maybe James and John, but they go up to the mountain. And while they're there, the cloud covers the mountain very much like in exodus when god gave moses the law and when they were there moses and elijah appear with jesus and they're talking and the, the few disciples who are there are like oh my gosh here's jesus with moses and elijah let's build some like tabernacles up here let's build it up and, and we'll go on our way and God speaks. Because they're, they're saying craziness. And so what does God say? I think this is profound, people. Don't think we're stretching any truth here. This is in Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, this is Peter, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The scriptures say that the law and the prophets, that's who Moses is. They, they, the, the Jewish people credit Moses to writing the, the law or Torah, which is the first five books which in, within the, the Jewish um, text. And then the prophets could be summed up in Elijah, even though Elijah wasn't the only prophet. There were many prophets. But the scriptures continue to point. Jesus said, hell, the law and the prophets, these people are meant to point to Jesus. And so when they're all there, the Father says, listen to Jesus. So church, followers of Jesus, we read the Bible and it doesn't line up with Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Never use the words of the law and the prophets to correct Jesus. 
Jesus is the word of God. The function of the Bible, even according to Jesus, who is the word of God, is to first of all witness to Jesus. That's the function of it. This is what Jesus said in John 5. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. This is Jesus telling the religious leaders. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so this kind of Christ-focused lens, they tell us that scripture functions to develop a community trained in righteousness. So we're not undermining anything. They function to develop a community trained in righteousness, equipped to do good. That is to become like Jesus in this world. To become like Christ in this world. So I, I, I began with uh, Mark Knoll's book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. If you're interested in reading this, I think it's really, really interesting and disturbing. Uh, the other person that I've been reading is a, is this is, is Brad Jersak's book. Um, in the series, I was using his one, A More Christ-Like God. Um, but he's got another one called The More Christ-Like Word, and he's just going through the scriptures. It's a good, good, good book. If you're wrestling with how to read the scriptures and, and making sense of it. He talks about um, this, that progressive revelation. And he says this, that while every word in the scripture is true, we do not get the complete truth in one package. As if it's a house, it's like brick upon brick. It's built until the whole house is built. And he goes on to say, that God's message is being breathed through the inspired text. But he goes on to say, but there's a problem. And this is where Paul picks up. And he says, the problem is, is that we read through veils. The veil covers our eyes and our hearts so that, so that um, as we read what the Bible says, we can't perceive it. And we can't perceive what it teaches. And so we read by the letter, literalism. Or a flat way, rather than by the Spirit, the gospel sense. This is what Paul is going to say here in 2 Corinthians. And so the message becomes a source of death and condemnation instead of this message of life. And that we need to have this veil come off our eyes so that we can read, we can see plainly. Because our eyes are veiled before Christ. This is where Paul begins. This is my last scripture um, for today. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 18. And it talks about this veil that is still on today that allows us not to see Jesus in the text. It covers our eyes to this truth and about how it's lifted and where it points. And so I want to read this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to look at this as well. It comes verses 5 to 18. So, and then I'm going to real quickly... Just speak to, uh, Paul's going to take this and he's, he's comparing and contrasting four different views here. And so I'm going to real quickly show you those and then have some implications here. So this is 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are incompetent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, 
so that the Israelites would not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory as it, though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? All right, they're mentioning so many interesting things here. But they're talking about the ministry that brought death was this, the idea of the law. And, you know, sort of like that curse upon the law. Anybody doesn't obey the law. It, 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 it didn't bring blessing. Because the blessing of the law was like, whoever obeys the law will be blessed. And if you break the law, you're going to be cursed. And it didn't bring blessing. Um, and they talk about being engraved on stone. That's, that's, an, that's talking about Moses because the commands were given to Moses and they engraved him upon stone. That Moses went on to the mountain. He ascended on there. And, and God, he, he spoke to God almost like face to face. And they said that whenever he met with God, his face shone with the glory. So that's what they're referencing here. It says, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glory... For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to present the Israelites from, to, to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. So at, at this time, when they're writing in Corinthians, there was only one text. It was the old scriptures. The, the scriptures weren't put together. So anytime the Bible mentions actually the scriptures, it, it's referencing the first half. But in that, he's saying, so even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when, any, when anyone turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so let me get to these multiple contrasts within this. So we have the glory of Moses, which is representing the law, versus the glory of Christ, which is unveiled in the gospel. Jesus is the lens for which we read it all. Jesus unveils it when we turn to Jesus. We're no longer blinded. In those stories, we can read them through Jesus. That which is passing away, the old covenant, verses, versus that which remains, this new relationship through Jesus. This contrasts the reading by the letter, literalism, verse reading by the Spirit, the gospel. Damnation, verse the ministry of life. In contrast to the fruit of death versus the fruit of life. And so what we see is that the Spirit of God is at work. Progressively removing veils for the people of God. Even as their story moves forward. And that's what we saw in the story with the United States and the people with slavery. They were veiled. Either through the hardness of their heart. 
miss Jesus. They were reading the scriptures by the Spirit of God. They read it flat, and so they defended atrocities and terrible things in the name of God. But the Spirit is at work removing veils for people, for the people of God, even as their story moves forward, as your story moves forward. We can grow. The veils of our eyes are being taken off them so we would see Jesus more clearly. This divine illumination transforms our view of God. It transforms our view of God along the way. And it prepares us to see a God who's beautiful. It prepares us to see even the God that Abraham revealed when God showed up to Abraham from the beginning. This revelation that God's heart was to bless the whole world through Jesus. And so in it this morning, as I wrestle with Juneteenth and I mourn over the fact of the atrocities of what our country did, not our country, what people did, people who claimed the name of Jesus did, and people who still claim the name of Jesus but still hold these disgusting beliefs and prejudices and hatreds towards people. We have to say, how did we how do we get there? And we say, oh, our eyes are veiled. We're reading the scriptures wrong without the spirit of God allowing us to see Jesus through the whole text. So I encourage you today, read the Bible and listen to Jesus. And if anything doesn't align up with Jesus, then listen to Jesus. I'm going to talk about this when we go through more of the Old Testament and some of the really hard things, especially the genocide, within the scriptures. And we're going to do that in two weeks. So if you want to see about how to do that, how we would then listen to Jesus when some of the text seems to paint this picture of a God who looks nothing like Jesus. Even though Jesus said, God and I are exactly alike. I am the exact representation of the Father. And God does not change. So what do we do? Listen to Jesus pinnacle of our salvation and faith. It's not undermining scripture in any way. It's holding Jesus high as our Lord and our Savior. And as Jesus is lifted up, all people will be drawn to the Father. May that be. So today, we're going to take communion. And I want to, I want to make some declarations Oh, did anybody get these? Did you, I, we forgot to tell you, and if you're on Zoom, we would love for you to participate. I know it might feel like you're alone. But there is a church who is gathering under the person of Jesus. Under the beauty of Jesus. Under the teaching of Jesus. And sometimes it feels like a weird thing, a small thing, even with this. But Jesus said, oh... Eat of me. This is my body broken for you. Jesus was willing to allow people to move violently upon himself. So violent. Jesus could have squashed it at any moment. He could have done the work of saving of sin and then come back and retaliated against those who hurt him. But he doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. 
That is the ethic of Jesus. And then Jesus took the cup, shared it with his disciples, even those who would betray him, even those who colluded with the devil. He shared it with them and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Forgiveness of sins. Drink. So we're going to eat and drink together. We're going to sing. We're going to do that. Before you do, I want to invite you guys to stand as we do this. That picture, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus is our life. It is the pinnacle. And in the death and life of Jesus says that um, a veil is removed and there can be no, uh, no doubt to the beauty of our God. And so I have three statements that I want us to read together. We're going to throw those up there. Those are the three. Hopefully you guys can see those. And I want to, I'll, I'll say them out loud just so that we kind of know. With Jesus at the center of all of our revelation, this is what we are saying. We are declaring this outright. We're not defending God. God doesn't need to be defended. But we're saying this because we know this to be true. God is not a bigoted national deity. God's will is to bless the world. Everybody agree with that? Yeah. Then we're going to read together. God is not a violent militarist. God's agenda is for peace for all. Agree with that? God is not a maniacal death dealer. God is a redeeming lover. And so if you have any doubts of those things being true, look at Jesus and listen to him. At his first word when he rose from the dead... After being violently killed, he says this, Peace be to you. Those are his first words. You don't think he comes to bring peace? He did not bring a sword, I tell you that. And he came to bring life. So let's read these statements together, and then we're going to take and we're going to sing. So let's, let's read this together as our testimony of the beauty of our God in the person of Jesus. God is not a bigoted national deity. God's will is to bless the world. God is not a violent militarist. God's agenda is peace for all. God is not a maniacal death dealer. God is a redeeming lover. We praise you, God, for your revelation through Jesus. We pray that the veil of our eyes would be removed, that we could see the perfection and the beauty of God. We pray, Lord, for those who claim you would see that as well, that you would continue to illuminate the beauty of your gospel, that we would understand your life, your death, your gift of life, your salvation, your Holy Spirit, that we might emulate that life here in the world. And so, let us eat. So if you got the wafer already out, feel free to pull that out and eat it. Thank you, Jesus.
All right, well, if you got the juice, let us drink too for, for Jesus and his love towards us. Amen. God, thank you for your gifts to us. Thank you for that you're demonstrated in the person of Jesus and they reflect your beautiful character. Oh, may our hearts and minds be animated and moved towards you. May we be unashamed to declare that goodness that you give. Amen. Lord, I
Thank you, Marty. So, um, Kira Hines, who is a part of our community, Amanda's daughter, she's in middle school or high school. She won a Dr. Luke, Martin Luther King um, writing contest, and she's going to be in Oak Park here at noon sharing her speech uh, by the library in Oak Park. That's on Oak Park Boulevard. I'm going there, but I just want to let you know uh, she's doing that. That's going to be happening right at noon. Anybody who wants to roll over there and just to be able to support her, to commemorate um, Juneteenth and what's going on. That's happening, I think, like in 30 minutes. So I'm going to be grabbing my kids and, and rolling over there. So Kira is doing that. So if you know the Heinz family, you know Amanda's going to be there and their family and stuff. But if you, if you want to go. And for, for people about, um, for Juneteenth, I invite you to commemorate it today or tomorrow. And as for the majority of us as white people, you kind of wonder, what, what does that mean? It is different for us. But with that, I would say, give. Give of money. Give money to black-owned businesses. Help to lift up the community around you in some way. That's how you can commemorate it. So if you have the opportunity to be able to commemorate this holiday, I invite you to do so. Out of love, out of Jesus' teaching, what does the love of God look like? Well, love your neighbor. And so may we do that. God bless you. Yeah, um, if, if anything, kind of, you, you, you're disagreeing or you're wrestling or there's conflict in thoughts or teachings, take a hold of those. Take a hold of those. Write them down. Share them. I would love to sit with you and talk um, as well. Not that I have all the answers. I, couldn't, I could be veiled in some way as well. But um, let's engage in the conversation. And may Jesus be illuminated. May you go in peace today. Amen.